Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today I am honored to be joined by a veteran of Broadway, West End, and Australian stages, Caroline O'Connor. Caroline is about to take on the role of Lottie G in the revival of Mac and Mabel at the All Roads Theatre in California, having starred in the West End premiere of the show in 1995. I encourage any West Coast listeners to buy tickets to that production, which are available at the link in the episode description. Caroline has also appeared on Broadway stages in Chicago, Anastasia, and A Christmas Story, and across the globe she starred in Funny Girl, Sweeney Todd, Follies, Hello Dolly, Gypsy, The Rink, and many more shows. She's also starred on screen in Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge and as Ethel Merman in Night and Day. And now, without further ado, here's Caroline O'Connor. And I would love to start off by talking about Mac and Mabel and your history with the show. And how did you first become involved in that London production? Well, um, excuse me, a little froggy. I um, had worked with a wonderful English director called Paul Perrison on uh, a lot of shows up to that point. He had given me a lot of opportunities to do roles in repertory theatre. So although I'd been in Me and My Girl in London and Cabaret and A Chorus Line um, on on tour, um, this particular director had taken, I think, a bit of an interest in me and my work and had hired me for several shows like West Side Story um, and uh, what else did we do together? Like just, well, we did, in total, we did 10 shows together. But when this show came up and um, he was um, going to direct it, he actually said to the producers, look, I'd love... Caroline to play the role of Mabel. Um, he said, you can have a whoever you want to play Matt. <laughs> he said, but I would love uh, it to be Caroline, which was, I'm so grateful to him for that because, I mean, you can imagine every girl in London wanted to play the role of Mabel Normand and to sing that magnificent score. So it was really, I suppose, because of our relationship and and he'd seen that, um you know, that maybe at, over a period of time I was ready then to take on a leading role. And what was it like to work with Jerry Herman and what sort of input did he give you on the show or on the but role? He was, as you can imagine, the most charming and positive, um, possibly one of the most positive energies of anyone that I have ever worked with because he just smiled so much and just loved every second of whatever we were doing, you know, it was just positive affirmations the entire time, which blew me away because I didn't expect, I suppose it's the first time I'd met an actual Broadway, uh, you know, lyricist and composer in real life. And I, I had no idea that he would be so warm. And I thought he might be a bit more precious about the work, you know, and sort of be a bit harder, but it was the entire opposite. He was just 
the most beautiful, sensitive, caring, encouraging, supportive person you could possibly imagine. So um, the nerves disappeared very quickly once he came into the room because he sat there just with that big grin on his face and pretty much just let us kind of do our thing. I mean, maybe some suggestions uh, during the singing rehearsals, but he just looked thrilled. I think because the show had not been on for so, so many years at this point, and maybe because it had not been received as well as it probably should have been when it opened. And I have my own theories about that. Um, I think he was just thrilled to get to to hear the song sung live and the and to hear the score again. So we were very lucky that um, he was able to come and join us. Yes. And given that you probably know the show the best of anyone next to Jerry Herman now having done it three times, what do you what do you think is the reason that it wasn't as successful in New York originally? Well, people always try and put it down to, I remember during rehearsals, they would say, oh, you know, oh, it's too sad. Even reviewers would say, oh, the story's too sad. You know, she dies and, well, we all die. <laughs> and also, um, you know, I think, I don't think that's a fair comment because, you know, we've had musicals like Les Miserables, uh, which is a French revolution. And we've had, you know, um, Miss Saigon, the Vietnam War. And we've had, you know, a lot of people dying in musicals. And so I, don't, I actually don't think that that's, that's the problem with the show. I think that uh, they did criticize the writing quite a bit, um, but I think it was, musical theater is like fashion and, and things come in, in and out. And, and I think at that point in 1974, I think it was when the show opened, you know, we were experiencing things like a chorus line. Uh, you know, theatre had changed so much. It was really becoming quite modern and there was a new kind of vibe with musical theatre. And I think it being the kind of slightly more old-fashioned type of show um, in its period, and I just think maybe the timing wasn't quite right. You know, things were changing. Um, and as a new, it's, it's without a doubt, right, Charles, that that score has to yeah. be one of the most beautiful scores ever written. You know, he never wrote a bad score, I don't think anyway, but you know, that overture and I Won't Send Roses and, and Time Heals Everything. And that some of those songs, you just think, well, there's no doubt that it is a magnificent musical. I, I just think the timing was bad. And, yeah. you know, perhaps people weren't, as interested in that story as they maybe should have been. And that's why it's thrilling that we're doing it in Los Angeles, I think. I'm just changing the subject here. Yeah, but no. because it's about this amazing movie maker, Max Zenit, you know, who, you know, created such amazing work. And here we are now, finally, I think Mac and Mabel has found it, its home by, you know, actually getting a viewing in Los Angeles. So, um, I have to say our experience was very good, Charles. We we did do a run in Leicester, which was very successful. And then we I think we did about seven and a half months in London, which is probably the longest running version of Mac and Mabel. And we did a beautiful cast recording. So um, yeah, I was incredibly proud to be part of that show. And I got a Laurence Olivier nomination. So that was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the icing on the cake. I didn't win, Judy Dench won, but um, <laughs> There you go. She's pretty good. <laughs> and what is it like now to take on the role of Lottie G as opposed to Mabel Normand? 
Yes, I think it'll be really interesting in the room because I'll probably be mouthing all of the words to, <laughs> to the Mabel numbers. But I, when I did the show in um, England, um, I worked with a wonderful lady called Catherine Evans and she played Lottie. Um, and she really was amazing. She was fabulous. And I have to say that I, I admired her portrayal and I also just that I liked the role because quite often it's uh, easy in shows so even television movies films musicals to have the women kind of competing against each other um, but with these two roles I think Lottie becomes a really good sort of confidant and friend and supporter of Mabel and so it's it, it's kind of a refreshing to see a character that uh, is that kind of personality um, and it's diff she's different you know, like she's not fresh. She's an old hoofer. She's been around for years, you know, seen it, done it all. So I like the fact, I like the idea of taking on that energy instead of having to be the sort of, you know, bubbly. It's just um, fun to play a different type of character, different energy. So, and also I'm still tap dancing, even at this age, the ripe old age. Um, <laughs> And so I've been working on that in Australia. I was sent to Zoom of the routine mm -hmm. and Scott and, the, and his assistant, um, Sylvie, was working on it. And, and so I've been working with somebody I know here in Australia and getting my tap shoes back on. So that's thrilling for me. I can't believe I'm still dancing, but I, I, I just love it so much. So, yeah. So I think the role is wonderful. It's it's a fun, ballsy kind of broad, and I get to do two big show-stopping numbers. So I'm very lucky. Yes. And to go back now to the beginning, I'd love to ask you how you first became interested in performing. Well, I think just as a child, I was a bit of a – I was shy. This is funny dichotomy. I was shy, but I was also a bit of a show-off. So um, – and I don't know if you've ever heard of a play called The Rise and Fall of Little Voice. Yes. Um, yeah. And I, I did the play recently, but I, but it it's about a little girl that sort of sings in secret and, um, you know, admires and loves all the great singers uh, that have gone by. And I, as a child, I, I, I saw, when I saw the play, my husband took me on a date to see the play. And I remember I was sitting there thinking, oh, my God, they've written a story about this, about my life. <laughs> This is me because I used to go into our good lounge room because we had a loud TV room and then we had the good lounge room and that's where the record player was and I used to listen to all these amazing singers and try and sing along with them. You know, the Judy Garlands and then Shirley Bassey's and the, you know, Mary Martins and the, you name them. And I think that's where my love of um, performing came from. That's how it sort of started was this secret passion for singers um but then um it also began because my parents were born in Ireland and they took me to Irish dancing classes so I was an Irish dancer from about the age of five and a half and uh very competitive I ended up um, I won state championship Australian championships and I came third in the world in Dublin for Irish dancing so the dancing was a big part of my life and then the school that I went to also taught tap ballet, jazz. So then I started about age nine, I started doing the other types of dance. And then when I was 17, I went to the Royal Ballet School for two years in London to study because I thought I wanted to be a, a classical ballet dancer. And once I saw the competition, 
was so fierce because you can imagine in London all the greatest, you know, from all over the world were coming to study there. I knew that I could be a good dancer, but I didn't think that I could be a principal ballet dancer, realistically. Mm. So um, I went back home and I did, didn't really know what I was going to do because I had no musical theatre experience whatsoever. I'd never had any singing lessons. So I went along to an audition for Oklahoma, which was um, already on in Australia, but they were looking for one dancer to come in to take over as a swing. And, and I took that job and that's that was about 19, ooh, I hate to say it, about 1981, 82. And that's, it just kicked everything off. I just realized how in love with musicals I was and I wanted to learn everything I could about them. And what was it like to be in such a kind of professional competitive world as a very young person and young performer? I think I was lucky, Charles, because I never had as I never had that sort of immediate desire to be the lead. I always just loved being on stage. I mean, I told you about the fact I was a show off as a child. I was shy and do things in quiet, but also in the, on the quiet. But I would also like if the TV was on and a TV commercial came on, I'd jump up in front of the TV and and in you know do the commercial. My mum and dad would be saying, "Sit down, Caroline, get out of the way," you know. So I so part of me was just I think I just was born to sort of be a performer because. Once I got there, I was just happy. I didn't notice any of the kind of negative energy. Um, I was happy just to be on in the ensemble. We called it the chorus in those days. And, um, and then I started to understudy people. So I was understudying and learning from some of the greatest, you know, performers. Like, for instance, my first West End show was me and my girl. And I was second understudy to um, Sally, the role of Sally, which was played by Emma Thompson. So you can imagine standing in the wings every night and watching somebody like that do their do their thing. So that became my sort of learning was as an understudy studied in London for 10 years was to stand in the wings and to watch the leads and watch the really good people do their work because I'd never had the opportunity to go to a musical theater school. But mm. it was Gosh, it's. I look back now. You are. That's a really good question you asked me because I felt nothing but joy when mm. I first got into musicals. Nothing but joy. But once you start getting more responsibility <laughs> of playing bigger roles or you know leading roles, that's when I think it gets harder. Right. Yeah. I think you feel a little bit more vulnerable and a little bit more um, like responsible. And how did you decide to move from Australia back to England to continue your theatre career? It's interesting. After Oklahoma, I did another musical called, well, I did West Side Story. Uh, and I was playing Consuela and understudying Anita. And then the show moved from Sydney to Melbourne. And they asked me if I would take over the role of Maria, uh, even though I wasn't the understudy to Maria. I don't know why the director... MD Dobbs Franks I think just saw something and he thought that I might, I might be able to take it on I knew that I didn't have a lot of experience I knew that in my heart even though I did the show and an English producer came along to see it one night called Bill Kenwright and um, a couple of days later I went and did an audition for him that's why he was in town he was doing Joseph in his Technicolor Dreamcoat in Australia and I walked into the audition and he said didn't I see you performing the other night in West Side Story 
And I said, yes, you did. And I thought, oh, God, because I knew I wasn't really that great. I was fine, you know. But he said to me, I think you're wasting your time here. I think you need to move to England. Mm. I just bluntly said it to me. <laughs> and because I was born in England, I thought, well, you know, I've got so much to learn because I really wasn't that great in the show, I didn't think. Um, I'm going to do it. So I, I literally that night went home and I said to my parents, I think I'm going to go back to England because I'd lived there for two years while I was at the Royal Ballet School, so I knew I loved it. And so that's it was a very impulsive suggestion by someone and I very impulsively took on the um, challenge and I said to my parents, I'll give myself maybe two years and if I don't like it, I'll come home. And I didn't come home for 14 years for Australia. Yeah, I ended up working constantly in shows so and getting to work with some amazing people. And I think they were my teachers. You know, when you work with people like Bayork Lee on A Chorus Line and Gillian Lynn on Cabaret and, you know, just when you work with the best of the best in shows, you learn so much from the directors and choreographers. So, yes. yeah, crazy, right? Very yes. impulsive. <laughs> And I wanted to ask you more about Gillian Lynn because I think that she's underappreciated in the sort of theater canon for all of her contributions. And what was she like to work with? She was strict. <laughs> <laughs> she was strict. Um, but, you know, loyal, um, incredibly loyal. Because, I mean, even when I was there doing Anastasia, um, uh, her husband, uh, Peter, uh, came to see the show, actually. But... Um, prior to that, I'd been in New York and I was invited to one of her birthday parties. I think it, I think it was a big one. I think it was the 90. And um, <clears throat> to think that I'd met her in 1980, actually it was before 86. I did a movie with her. Just a, a, We did a dance scene in a movie called European Vacation with Chevy Chase. It was shot in London. And we did a dance scene at the Camden Palace, which was a nightclub, and she choreographed it. And that's when I first met Gillian. And then I auditioned for her for Cabaret and I became one of the Kit Kat girls in Cabaret. And that that was our friendship. Um, uh, I understudied Sally Bowles in that production. So, gosh, the dance rehearsals were absolutely exhausting. Such a perfectionist, just unbelievable discipline and I think I loved her because she had that ballet discipline as well which I loved so much she always turned up at rehearsals you know 100% ready to go full of beans full of energy full of love but very very strict you know mm. um, a, a magnificent warm-up every day which she also did I think she did that up until the day she died probably um, but yes yeah, strict you know uh, a taskmaster but I, I didn't mind that I quite like that you know some people don't like it but I think growing up with the ballet discipline you're used to it mm. but a heart of gold and incredibly loyal and if she liked you and she liked your work you definitely felt that love coming from her for sure yes and do you find that there's a difference between what British people and Americans respond to in terms of musical theatre Yes, um, American audiences are much more gregarious. They're much more responsive than English audiences. They, English audiences are responsive, but American audiences are, uh, yeah, definitely. There's more 
energy coming from the house also particularly after a performance like the fact that people will come to the stage door and they want to meet you they want an autograph they want to say hi that's not as common in England I mean we used to have barriers up you know you saw Anastasia it was incredible but just to hold back the hundreds of people that would come and show their appreciation. And I think because Broadway is the home of the musical, it's the, you know, it created the musical. I think there's such a beloved um, audience, you know, they, they appreciate the, the craft and the, the history of the fact that musicals really were, were founded, I suppose, in America um, and, you know, but the of course England does musicals very well too, um, yeah. um, but I just think there's a different energy in America. I love working in America. I love that feedback from an audience. Although sometimes they do like to shout things out from the. I've been in a production. I've been in an audience where people are shouting something at the stage, and I find that a little bit strange. <laughs> I mean, I can give you an example of that if you like. Sure. Yes. I went to see The Color Purple with Cynthia Erivo. And when she sang that magnificent song, which I think is called Home, or the word home is in song, um, a gentleman in the audience jumped up and screamed, where's that pony at? <laughs> <laughs> and everyone applauded and screamed because he, he was just basically acknowledging the fact that he thought she should win the Tony. Uh, and he jumped, he jumped out of his seat and just said it out loud at the end of the song. And I was quite taken aback by it because, <laughs> because I think she then she had to stay in the zone, even though the whole audience was cheering. And um, so, yeah, that you don't get that as much in England. Probably more complaints about people taking photos and recording. But um, I do think the audiences are much more responsive in America. They just 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 are. I think American people are just just are. They're just much more open and. We are a little bit more, you know, sort of guarded, I think, in England. And a classic sort of American role that you took on in England was Fanny Bryce in Funny Girl. And what was that experience like of starring in that show? Well, I actually did the show here in Australia, but I did it twice, uh, which is bizarre because it never gets done, as you know. So I did it in um, uh, with a production company which is, it was basically our version of Encores mm. here in Australia. And uh, we were one of the first productions that they did. So you had to learn the role yourself, really. You We only had, I think it was 10 days to put the production together, which was madness mm. uh, because we did do all of the scenes and we also had costume changes. And then, you know, even though the orchestra was on stage and it was all staged, it was like doing the whole show, but I had always, always loved the show and the role, of course, and just Barbara Streisand was just unbelievable, that I thought I would be an absolute fool not to take this on. Um, and, yeah, it was, I think, one of the most favourite things I've ever done in my life. Mm. I think it's so beautifully written, it's so beautifully constructed, and the music is incredible. The hardest part about doing it, though, is that, you know, Barbara Streisand is so connected to it that you do wonder if the audiences are going to be able to accept anybody else. But I just kept reminding myself that I wasn't playing Barbara Streisand, that I was playing Fanny Bryce. And right. so as much as I would like, I, I might steal a few things from her and take, you know, 
I always had, and I read Fanny Bryce's autobiography. I mean, I do a lot of research when I do roles on real people. Um, I I decided that I would just really try to enjoy it rather than being fearful of it. You know, that I'd be there'd be comparisons, and it was just amazing, hilarious to get to play that much comedy in a musical, especially the physical comedy was just the most fun I've ever had with my clothes on. Seriously, just <laughs> amazing fun. And then I did it again about, I can't remember how many years later, and I was no spring chicken. I said to the producers, are you sure you want me to do it again? You know, you might have to call it funny old lady. <laughs> and they said, no, it's a very big theatre. And if you saw photos, actually, the people that did my costumes and makeup and everything, it was pretty amazing. Even I was like, okay, you know, because I was not, I didn't even want to say how old I was, but um, yeah, I got the chance to do it twice. It was just crazy. Um, and I was a little bit jealous when they did it in London and I didn't get to do it there, but <laughs> <laughs> but there you go. I mean, you know, it's a bit like that with shows. If you get the chance to do a show like that, it's a bit like a chorus line that gets done so rarely, then you just count your blessings. Right. And what have been some of the shows that have led to the most interesting research processes for you? Probably playing a lot of, yeah, like superstars, like I played Edith Piaf. That was very difficult because, um, well, it was my choice. I'd worked with a director. Um, what am I saying? No, I actually hadn't worked with him. I, a director had seen me in a production. I can't remember what show it was. I think it was a play. I did a one-woman play called Bombshells. And I think he saw me in that. And he said, is there something that you would like to do? And I said, yeah, I've always wanted to do Piaf. Um, because the director that directed me in Mac Mabel, he suggested it to me. He mm -hmm. said, you know, um, if you ever get the chance, you should play the role. And so um, Jane Lapotere, I think, did it on Broadway. Mm -hmm. And um, I loved her voice and her and the music anyway. So he said, oh, well, I'm going to go and talk to the Melbourne Theatre Company and I'll get back to you. So he rang me back and he said, yes, they want to do it. And I said, that's amazing. Fantastic. And I put the phone down and I thought, oh, my God, I just I don't speak French. This is nuts. What am I thinking? Um, how am I going to do this? Because you can't sing all of the songs in English. You just can't. And I realised I did the math and I realised that I'd have to sing at least 12 of them in French. You know, and some of them had a bit of both, a bit of English and a bit of French, but but most, a lot of them had French, were mainly French. And so I was actually filming, I was filming Moulin Rouge at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I had a lot of free time um, to do my research. Because, you know, you do a lot of waiting when you're on a film set. So I would, re I read every book there was to read about Piaf. I started with a French tutor about four and a half months before I started rehearsals. And I would go and do classes with him to learn the songs in French. And I wanted to learn it the way she sang, the, the, it, cause she'd sang sort of in gutter French. It, you know what I mean? It, it's like speaking in Cockney rather than in, you know, sort of upper class English. So I, I did a lot of study. And so by the time I got to rehearsals, I think I knew all but maybe two of the songs. Mm. I was very nervous about forgetting it because I don't speak the language. I thought, what's going to happen? But I think because I'd learned them with a tutor and he'd explained to me what the songs, everything meant. And, you know, I could always slip into English if I needed to. But 
it's muscle memory and it just sort of stuck so that was the most challenging probably thing apart from the one woman play which was two hours long and it was six characters that I had to play um I think that's one of the most challenging things I've ever done and then of course I did Judy Garland I I was I did the world premiere of End of the Rainbow before it went to Broadway we did it in Australia and that was very hard to to play an icon like that because she's so so beloved and the voice is so particular and the story is so tragic we it's basically you know the movie judy with renee zellweger yes yes well our version is basically that that movie was the version that we created here in australia and then it went to broadway uh, as you know with tracy bennett and then the movie was made so we feel very proud of the fact that we we had the initial creation here in Australia for that. But yeah, so I think playing real people like Fanny Bryce, Piaf, Judy Garland, you know, they're the biggest challenges because of the expectation of the audiences and you really want to do them proud. You know, you want to do justice to, to their legacy. You don't want people to go, oh God, that was a terrible representation of that person. And I'm not I don't mimic people, but I do try to really get the essence of the person and the timing of the way they sing, the way they phrase things, because that's really very much the identity of the person. So I do a lot. I, I do a lot of work. Like even now I'm doing a lot of free work before Mac and Mabel, but I feel like I have to because our rehearsal period is so short. Yes. And we talked about Mac and Mabel as a show that didn't have a lot of success in New York and then did later on. And another show you did that didn't get its due in New York was The Rink. And what mm. are your sort of thoughts on that show and what that was like too? Well, I don't know if you know that I did The Rink in London. Um, uh, I understudied Angel in, with the London production with Josephine Blake and Diane Langton. Um, so... Uh, that was, I got to do like, I think, I think I did either one or two shows a week. It was one or two. I can't remember exactly. It may have been two. And um, so, and Terence McNally came over for that and Candor and Ebb. And so I think I feel very fortunate, you know, worked with Stephen Flaherty and then Aaron's. I think when you've got the real people there in the room, there's nothing quite like it. You know, you, you get all the information that you need because from the creators, it's incredible. So that was a really lucky break too. That was the first time I got to meet them all because, of course, I worked with um, Terence again on Anastasia many years later. Oh, God, I loved that show. I just thought that because I love Candra and Ed, full stop, anything that they've written. I've done a few of their shows now, you know, Kiss of the Spider Woman as well. And um, I just love that, you know, that relationship between the two women. It's a fascinating, messy kind of real, you know, storyline. And then, oh, you wouldn't believe it, though. I don't know how many years ago it was now, maybe five. I get a phone call to say, do you want to do the ring um, at the Southwark Playhouse uh, and play, this time, play Anna? And it was, <laughs> I'm just so sad that we didn't get a transfer or we didn't do more with it because it really was a very, very amazing production of the show. I truly believe that. And I worked opposite a lovely actress called Gemma Sutton and the boys were amazing on their skates, what they could do. The choreography was by uh, Fabian Alois, who's just done Sunset Boulevard um, in London. It was in the round. 
So it was very, and we were very close to the audience. So the emotions were visceral, you know, uh, oh, look, uh, that role is, anything Cheetah Rivera's done though, is probably yeah. a role that I want to play. And I think I've now done maybe three or four of her shows. So um, I'm a big fan of her. She's a big inspiration for me. And another great American musical theatre writer you worked with, perhaps the greatest of them all, was Stephen Sondheim. And what was it like to be in collaboration with him? Oh, look, brings a tear to my eye to think that I had that opportunity in my lifetime because not everybody gets that incredible chance, you know, in the business. And so uh, look at me luxuriating in bed. Isn't that hilarious? I'm sorry, um, I'm distracted. Um, so the first time I ever got to sort of work for him was um, I was invited to be part of his 80th birthday celebration at the Royal Albert Hall. That was conducted by an incredible um, conductor called David Charles Abell, who is American, but lives in Eng England primarily. I think he still does. And um, Anyway, so I sang Broadway Baby. I opened the show after the overture. That was terrifying. And then uh, did A Weekend in the Country and, you know, other numbers with the cast. You know, incredible. Dame Judi Dench, Bryn Terfel, Maria Friedman, you know, uh, Jenna Russell, you, you name them, Julian Ovenden, incredible mm -hmm. cast of players. Um, and I just was so honoured to be part of it because at that point I actually had not worked with Stephen Sondheim on a production. I think I was basically chosen because of the, the Broadway Baby number. So that was incredible. And he came to rehearsal and I did get a note that I was singing a wrong lyric because I and I had been warned that he was very strict, <laughs> probably more so about the lyrics than the tune sometimes is what I was told. So I did get a lyric uh, note that I was singing something the wrong way around. Now, what was it was, oh, I, I don't want to waste time on your, your uh, interview, but... It was something that you sing twice, but it's not the same the second time, you know. Mm. And, of course, on the night, I couldn't think straight because I kept thinking, am I going to do it right? <laughs> I, could barely, I could barely enjoy myself. Um, and then uh, the next time was probably, well, it was uh, Sweeney Todd. And that was very unexpected, that opportunity, because I was at home in Australia and I went on to Facebook and, you know, you got the messenger part of Facebook and there was a message in Messenger and it said, and it was from David Charles Abell, the conductor, and he said, where are you at the moment? And I said, I'm in Australia. Um, and he said, uh, do, you, do you think you could come to Paris? to do sweet pod <laughs> and I said what like, <laughs> what and he said um I said well when when does it start and he said well we've already been rehearsing for two weeks so um <laughs> we've almost finished act one <laughs> I had never done the show so it was like wow I don't I knew I loved the role anything that Angela Lansbury's done of course, you'd want to do, I want to do, because I'm that type of performer, I think. And so uh, I couldn't say no, you know. I had to say we. Oui. I had to go because it was the chance of a lifetime. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so when I got there, I was basically having to do three sessions a day. Most people do two sessions a day. I would do three and I did two sessions on a Sunday as well mm-hmm. to catch up. So I was just constantly catching up with what had already been done. It'd been an issue and basically, you know, it just was one of those things that happens in show business. So, and then I, you know, learned act two and then we got to, to, um, just before previews and then David announced to the company that Mr. Sondheim would be coming. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> freaking out because, you know, he's going to be there. And I'd had so little time to rehearse. I was staying in a lovely little hotel not too far from the theatre. So I used to be able to walk to and from the rehearsal studios at the theatre with my headset in. I'd get there, you know, an hour and a half earlier than everybody else. I'd be there till 9 o'clock at night. I just did everything in my power to to learn this role. And thankfully a lot of it was um, filmed. So there is some stuff out there, you know, on YouTube. Thing. I don't know who's put all this stuff out there, but it's out there. And it was a magnificent production. Mm. massive on a massive scale with a huge uh, operatic chorus and a massive or I mean it was done on a scale that you could only dream about yeah. um and so then and I worked with some uh, you know oh, just extraordinary singers uh who were incredibly supportive of me because I knew I'd had very little time on the opening night I've never heard a standing ovation and a cheer like it in my life, particularly when Stephen Sondheim came from the first balcony down to the stage. Because mm-hmm. in Paris, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen a show in Europe, but it's definitely worth going. Because the, I talk about American audiences' response, but in, in Europe it's incredible. They stomp their feet and they can clap for like 10, 12 minutes <laughs> nonstop, like just cheering. And that's what happened when he walked down from the first balcony along the, the front there and then they took him backstage and then onto the stage. I have never in my life heard an ovation like it. We were all crying. Um, he, I, he was incredibly moved. You know, you could tell just by the response. I was beside myself that I'd gotten through it and that the audience had had such an amazing time because it was all in English, but they had French surtitles. And you're not sure if they're going to get all the jokes and all of the, you know, all of the stuff. But but they did. I mean, they they, they understood everything. I mean, they I was amazed singing some of the comedic moments that they were so responsive and so quick because I thought that the titles would slow them down, you know? Right. But it was, I, I, I really didn't want it to end. I mean, I could have done the show for the rest of my life. It's one of the best times I've ever had. And and then I met him afterwards because we were doing some photographs and, and that's when I realised how sort of shy he is with that sort of, that you know, this sort of photos and, yeah. and he didn't seem to be too interested in that part of the occasion you know he said to me at one point do you speak French and I said no I don't speak French unfortunately and he said oh I said why and he said I just wanted you to tell them to stop taking photos <laughs> because yeah but it was it was an amazing moment because you know growing up in Rockdale singing in my lounge room to all those records as a little girl I could never have dreamt that I would be on stage you know with celebrating with Stephen Songheim. Right. And then, of course, a few years later, I did Follies in Milwaukee. I played Phyllis, and he came to see that. Um, I was doing playing opposite Brent Barrett. Um, he was playing my husband. And so we were walk, walking down the Vom, 
Oh, sorry, it wasn't Milwaukee. It was the Chicago Shakespeare Theatre. We're walking down the vom and we could see the back of his head. We knew straight away it was him. Got on stage and I was like, oh, my God, this is Stephen Sondheim again. This is unbelievable. And he saw the show and he came backstage and he had a photograph with all of us. And then I did Assassins in Milwaukee. Um, I don't think he came to see that. No, he didn't. But I remember saying to him at Follies, um, you know, like, are you stalking me? Because uh, <laughs> here you are again. <laughs> I don't know if you found that funny or not, but um, he did remember me. But he did say, wow, you know, because I look very different. And, and he found out that I was Australian. And, and the most amazing part of that connection with him was, and I just have to share this because it's something that still blows my mind, was... Um, I can't remember what year it was, but it was when The Prince of Broadway was being talked about as a as a production. I got a phone call um, out of the blue saying that Hal Prince was going to call me at home. And I was, because I had used to have a, I had a home in England as well. And and I was like, what the, what the <laughs> hell? Hal Prince is going to call me at home? And he called me. Uh, I couldn't believe my ears. It was just a dream. And he said, actually, Steve told me to call you because uh, he, say, he saw you in Sweetie Todd and, and we're doing this workshop, you know, of Prince of Broadway and uh, we thought you might like to take part in it. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, yeah, uh, okay, why not? <laughs> and so I did do the workshop. Uh, with Susan Stroman and and everybody. Um, uh, unfortunately, I didn't do the show, and I can't remember why or whatever. Uh, I don't know whether I was asked. I mean, I know um, I saw the show, and I'm sorry that, you know, because it wasn't probably as successful as they probably hoped it would be. That happens with shows, you know. But that was something else because I'd never worked with Susan Stroman either. So to be in a rehearsal room and be dancing with her and, and Hal Prince there sort of directing and Jason Robert Brown on the piano. I mean, it really was like that alone, even <laughs> without doing the show, was one of the most exciting things that's ever happened in my life. You know, the kings of Broadway, the prince and the king of Broadway. I mean, wow. So, yeah, I just had to, I just had to share that because not many people know, you know, that that happened to me. And, um, yes, it was amazing. Mm. It is. And you mentioned before doing the movie of Moulin Rouge and how did that first come about, sort of transitioning from stage to screen stardom? I have been doing Chicago in Australia and everyone was talking about this film that was about to be done called Moulin Rouge. And I said, well, I'm not going to audition because I think I'm too old. I think I was about 36 at the time. I was still, I mean, I was still a bloody good dancer and I was in amazing shape, but I thought, I just think I'm too old. So everyone was going to the auditions and saying how fabulous it was. Oh, my God. And I, thought I didn't go. And then on opening night, Baz Luhrmann came to see the show. Mm. And then I got a, a phone call from my agent, lovely Kevin Palmer, and he said, Baz Luhrmann would like to see you for a screen test. And that's kind of how it happened. It was like a Hollywood wow. movie. So I got this phone call. I, I had to go, I had to sing a song, read a couple of scenes, actually from Cabaret, I remember, they were, which made me so happy because I had done the show. 
and then just be filmed and interviewed by him at his home in Iona, which he used to live in. I don't know if he still lives there, but Iona was in the in the cross in Sydney. Well, it's really nerve-wracking. But, um, yeah, so I went along and I actually was running very late, so I had to sit outside for a very long time, I remember. And Barry Otto was auditioning before me and he'd been in the movie Strictly Ballroom. And already, he'd already worked with Bass, but he was in there for a very long time. And the longer I was waiting, the more nervous I was getting, you can imagine. Um, but I wore, man, I wore a pretty little cashmere jumper, a little black pencil skirt. I felt good. I knew my what I had to do. I walked in and he was so welcoming, so beautiful. I was so apologetic about the waiting. And he was so handsome and just gave off this incredible energy. And then there's a guy in the room and he's filming everything. Uh -huh. He's got a camera, just filming me, he's filming him, he's filming everything. And so I sat down, we had a lovely chat, um, and then he asked me to read. And it was the beautiful scene about the green fingernails. If I should happen to paint my fingernails green. And you know that scene? Yes. Which I enjoyed. That was wonderful. And then he said, well, that's great. Thank you very much. You know, I, I know. I've, I said, don't you want me to sing? And he said, no, I've, I, I've heard your CD. I don't know. And I said, but I really want to sing. <laughs> I don't know why I did that. And he said, all right, then, you want to sing? So I sang maybe this time. And, and he, he actually put me in like a window frame and told gave me a bit of direction and then filmed me singing maybe this time, unaccompanied. And then I left and I thought, well, that's one of the most exciting experiences I've ever had because he'd already done Strictly Ballroom. He'd already done Romeo and Juliet. You know, it was like another one of those Hal Prince moments, something out of nowhere where you get to meet someone. And even if I didn't get the job, it was like an incredible experience. And about seven days later, I got the call from my agent saying um, that I had gotten the job. Actually, I got a fax. It was the days of faxes. <laughs> I, it was the day after opening, uh, proper opening, not opening night. No, what was it? It was another night. Anyway, a fax came and it and it said, um, you know, you've got the job. Yeah. And I didn't. And at the time, Roxanne, the number Roxanne wasn't actually in the film and in, in the mm. original script. That sort of came later, which I thought was amazing because it's it has such an amazing impact in the in the movie, the number and that scene. Um, I don't know how that came about, but suddenly. One day he said to me, do you want to come and hear the music? And he played it to me and I couldn't believe my ears. And and then he said, we're going to start with seven boys and then we're going to have like 40 couples and then it's going to build. And and then I got to work with John O'Connell, the choreographer, who's amazing. And oh, it took a year to film. Um, my contract was in the end, it was about a year, which is a long time to do a, a lot film. Of, a lot yeah. of rehearsing, a lot like we were rehearsing a play, like we were rehearsing a show. So everything was very well rehearsed. And then we did a lot of camera rehearsal and um, and a lot of like pre-stuff actually, Charles. You know, before we even started filming, a lot of like workshop readings, dance, I, they called it the dance laboratory. I'd go into this room with cha-cha and we would do stuff with skirts and kicks and, you know, just try stuff out. So it was kind of... In, not improv, but we were experimenting with kind of modernising the traditions of, of the dance period. So in that respect for me, 
I felt very honoured to be a small part of that process as well. And how do you find that the art of performing is different for a camera than for a live audience? Well, very, very different. Yeah. In fact, I used to watch a lot there. I've always been a watcher, you know, not a stalker, but a watcher. And so I used to I used to sort of hang around the set a bit, you know, rather than sit in the dressing room complaining, I sort of hide somewhere and, and watch him work because I was fascinated about the camera choices, the angles and and the emotional uh, content of an actor, like when they do a movie. Our energy on stage is very much about projecting or you right. know, even, even when you're speaking you know, softly, you still have to be heard. And so there's a method to it. And I was fascinated with film how sometimes I couldn't even hear them speaking. <laughs> I was like, you can't even hear a cue, you know, it's so quiet. So I watched a lot. My dog's going to come and kiss me. Sorry, she's going to look. Yeah, sorry. She just does. Thank you, Lola. Thank you. And she <laughs> she's a showgirl. And so um, that interests me a lot because it's not a genre that I'm familiar with or confident with. So I think spending a lot of time watching him. And sometimes I would say, ask questions about what can you see, you know, and he would explain to me, I remember once him telling me he was shooting something in a sort of, <clears throat> in a kind of triangular shape because he wanted the audience to look bigger than it was. You know, just simple things like that that probably a lot of other actors know. But I thought, oh, gosh, that's genius. You know, it really is to have that knowledge of, you know, maybe you've only got 100 people, but it looks like a 1,000. You know, it's oh, the magic of film is just mind-blowing to me. And I would love – I've done some, and I've done – you know, I've done a straight movie. I did a movie in Australia called Surviving Georgia, and I've done some television and things – I did the lovely, the movie, you know, the where I played Ethel Merman in that. Um, so film fascinates me, but it is very, very different. You know, we were lucky we were doing a musical because at the end of the numbers, the extras would applaud us. So we were still getting that gratification, you know, whereas in a lot of movies you can do something and there's just science. So you don't know, was it good? <laughs> Unless the director says, and also, you know that, I don't know if you've ever been on a film set, but even at the end of a scene, sometimes there's like a lull and then they cut. So this, they just hang on in case someone wants to maybe improv or just get a look or something. So that lull afterwards, I always find that really uncomfortable because it's like a deathly silence to me. But the amount of content that can happen, excuse me, in that moment can be really powerful. So... The more I've done it, the more I've realised, um, you know, how it's very different, but um, it's just a different creative process. That's all, you know, different technique. And what was it like with the lovely again playing a real character and with this golden age of Broadway? I know I shouldn't say this, but I play a lot of dead people. <laughs> <laughs> but I do. It seems to be my forte. Um, maybe because I love them so much. Maybe because I admire them so much and, you know, I listened to them so much as a child. You know, Ethel Merman was my favourite Broadway star. I listened to Gypsy nonstop. Mm. When she sang, I have a recording of me singing Rose's Turn when I was 11, <laughs> a cassette recording. And it's, I think it's funny because I never wanted to play Baby June or Louise. I wanted to play Rose, you know, in my head because when I heard her sing that, I could hear the emotion. I could hear the storytelling in that. 
Right. When she sings that song about that relationship with her daughter and the fact that she missed out and why didn't I get my chance? And I just, as a child, I, I could I could feel that right across from the LP in my lounge room. Mm. Um, and so then, of course, when I went to my audition, <laughs> it was quite funny, actually. I auditioned in London and they'd been looking for someone for a while because in the movie of, of De Lovely, you know, they've got a lot of big names i don't know if you remember but there's a lot of very known recording artists like sony artists i think they are and then they were trying to find someone for ethel that you know probably was a recording star but there's not many people that sing like that so i went along and sang lola don't keep kissing me so sorry i went along and i sang anything goes Mm. um and Kevin Klein was there at the casting. And off I went in my broadest Ethel Merman, which you can probably hear on the movie. And there was this stunned silence afterwards. And he said to me, oh, my God, I think you have a direct line to Ethel Merman. <laughs> and I'll never forget him saying that line. And and then, I, of course, you know, it didn't take long and I found out Unfortunately, that was one of the first things they wanted to shoot. So mm. I had to dash, you know, the next day to go and have a fitting at Angels. And then I had to go to George Martin's studios in London to record the song. And then suddenly I had to, was at the theatre doing it with the choreographer. And it, all, it happened all in about a week. From the moment I got the job, it just sort of all happened. And then one day I was, when I finished the Anything Goes routine, they wanted to do some reactions with Ash, Ash, um, Ashley, what was the actress's name? I can't remember now. Kevin Klein, Ashley Judd. Ashley Judd and Kevin Klein. And I said I would stay and just dance in front of them so that they could do some reaction shots. And they were like, oh, that's really sweet. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Because it makes it easier for them, you know, if you're yeah. there, sort of moving around and giving them a few looks. And I'll never forget this. About a week later, I got a beautiful bunch of flowers from Ashley Judd saying thank you. Ah. I thought that was really something, you know. Yeah. She sent me flowers because I went out of my way to stay. And, yeah, I thought that was just amazing. So mm. beautiful lady. I talk I talk a lot. Sorry, Charles. <laughs> no, I love hearing it. These are great stories. It's, it's thank fun. you. And your Broadway debut was, as you mentioned, in Chicago. And had you considered coming to America before that? Or had you had offers to do Broadway shows before that? Oh, I always wanted to. You know, that time I told you that I was asked, told, you know, maybe you should go and go to England. Yes. You know, by Bill Kenwright. Well, the reason he said England is because, you know, he lives in England. And so that's why he probably suggested England. But as a child... I always thought I'd like to go to, because I didn't know what Broadway was. Broadway to me was a word. It was like Broadway. I want to go to Broadway. I didn't know what it, I didn't know it was a place. (laughs) I thought it was just like a, that's Broadway. It was a thing, you know, and which it is. It's an energy all of its own. There's no doubt about that. But when I realized it was in New York, I I was like, oh gosh, you know, like, I I can't just go and live there, you know, because I was born in England, I'm going to live in England, but, you know, legally I can't live in America. So I found that really quite disappointing that I couldn't just go because I wanted to go there to study. So I actually went to England as a kind of default. I mean, I shouldn't say that, but I did because 
I knew that I could still get all that experience there. You know, you've got all of those theatres. I could go and see all these amazing performers, artists you know, every night, just the same as America. But at one point, I did think about going, you know, um, but I thought, gosh, how am I going to legally go? It just didn't seem possible. Then I met my husband, who's English and a musician. And so then it was sort of out of the question. You know, mm -hmm. once we'd sort of settled in England and, um, you know, we established ourselves in the West End and we were very busy, you know, constantly working on productions. Um, just seemed crazy. But I've always believed in fate. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that it was my destiny for some reason. I Somewhere in the bottom, in my heart, I thought that I might end up on Broadway. And I used to dream as a little girl of performing at the Tonys. Wow. And that happened too. And yeah, now I just have to start dreaming about winning an Oscar. And then maybe <laughs> <laughs> and then maybe that'll happen too. Um, do you know what I mean? I just felt like it's crazy. And I know I've just been listening to Barbara Streisand's book, you know, in mm. the car. And she talks about that, how she sometimes would visualise things. Now, of course, my career is not on any kind of scale of hers or many other people in America, but I, I've had an incredible career of being able to work in Australia and in England, uh, Europe and America. Yeah. And not many people get that opportunity to work on you know, three continents. So, and I've loved that because I love the different cultures. And when I go and work in different places, you just learn so much about the people and the music and the history. So... Yeah, I did think about really trying to do that earlier on. Some part of me regrets it, actually, Charles, because I was such a good dancer when I was young that I could have probably done more of those dancing musicals on Broadway. But I'm very happy the way things turned out because, you know, it's been very varied, uh, the career, for sure. Yes. And what was it like to come into the production of Chicago as a replacement and sort of find your way at that point yeah. in America? It was kind of nerve wracking, actually, because the show was so successful. Um, I The show had been going actually for seven years at that point. So it sounds hard to believe. Um, but they were just about to recast because the movie was coming out. The year that I, the, the time that I joined, they were recasting because of that. I remember getting a phone call from uh, the producers, Fran and Barry Weisler got in touch and said, look, we, you know, to be honest, we're looking for a very strong cast for this period because the movie's about to be launched. Right. And not that it, the other cast hasn't been strong, but they just wanted a cast that, you know, that, 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 that they thought would be a good one to have at the time. So um, uh, it was myself and Charlotte Dambois, who obviously is wonderful and Billy Zane mm -hmm. so we were the three people cast to come and play those roles at the time and also it was funny actually because while we well while we were doing the show um I had a very short rehearsal period for that too because I'd done the show before um Catherine Zeta-Jones and Renee Zellweger and Richard Gere came and did a photo shoot with us on stage and that that was absolutely thrilling um, and we got to go, the whole cast of Chicago of that time got to go to the premiere of the movie, wow. which was fantastic. We saw like a private screening of it 
thing. It was amazing. And I uh, got to go to the party afterwards in New York. But, yeah, when I first got there, I thought, I remember Walter Bobby saying to me, you think you're funny? Well, New York audiences will tell you if you're funny. <laughs> and it's true because they don't, you know, you have the best talent in the world, so they don't suffer fools gladly. And I remember thinking, no, I know what I'm doing because I'd absolutely loved the show so much and I'd had the best time. And if they've invited me, then they must think there's something that I can contribute. The hardest part was on my first performance on Broadway, it was just getting down the stairs <laughs> because my, my I was down in that lift and my legs were shaking. I don't normally get that nervous, but it was like the most extraordinary thing to ever happen in my life I I was about to perform on Broadway I was about to take my first steps on Broadway and and it it was like all of everything you could ever want in your life all coming together at once and it was a role that I adored and I knew that I was in good shape and um and I was in good company so because the people I was Charlotte was a dream to dance with you can imagine and to work with and Billy was just the most charming beautiful person and as nervous as I was so that was great um and then Kevin Backstrom when we moved to the Ambassadors Theatre because I, I actually wasn't going to stay that long but they invited me to stay longer so I stayed and then I went to the Ambassadors Theatre and then Kevin Backstrom from the Backstreet Boys came in and took over and he was wonderful he had that sexy southern drawl and and he could sing of course and was charming um and so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I wish I could have done it even longer, but I had other commitments. So anyway, it was a dream. Amazing. And what was it like figuring out your take on that role that so many great actresses have played? Oh, look, it's interesting, you know, because I adored Cheetah Rivera. So I used to listen to her. I had the cassette. So I used to listen to her a lot. I thought her the strength and the, the hilarity, the humour that she brought to it was very, very clever and very fun. I'd seen other performers like Uta Lemper do it very differently. I'd seen other productions, uh, you know, where Velma maybe might, might not have been as humorous, maybe more sexy or something, you know. But I remember with my research, you know, into the, the characters, I thought to myself, well, her name is Kelly. So I did assume that maybe there was a touch of Irish in her. I could be completely wrong, but I just was like, oh, Velma Kelly, you know, maybe that's her stage name. And when I read the script, what I noticed, Charles, is that it to me, it's a character that starts at the top and then goes down, which is very unusual because normally in shows you start at the bottom and your journey is to, to go up, you know, like to be mm -hmm. successful. Don't you think? And I thought yeah. that was a really interesting. So she starts as the top dog. And then along comes Roxy and all of this drama and attention. And she's, I saw her as a cat, you know, a cat with their claws just sliding down the wall <laughs> with a big sort of open eyes and a grin on her face, like, oh, she's losing all her power. And there's something cartoonish and funny about that for me, you know, that. So I saw her, I saw a lot of comedy and desperation, she says it, she says in an act of desperation. It's all explained in the dialogue. It's so brilliantly written right. that you, the character's all there on the page. And so I, 
I actually did really enjoy the comedic parts of her mm. and also the, the, the Fosse choreography was something I've dreamt of doing all my life. So I, yes. that to me was extraordinary. And um, my body's never been in better shape than when I do <laughs> Fosse choreography. And A Christmas Story and Anastasia were both full original musicals that you were part of. And how did those happen? Did you come to America to audition for those or were you already offered? Gosh, it's so funny. Like, like the way I often say to students, so I don't do master classes very often, very seldom. Like one, once in a blue moon, somebody will ask me to work with people. But I always say to them, you can't plan your career. There is no planning it. You never know what someone's going to produce. You never know what's going to happen. You just have to be prepared, be ready. So I was doing, actually, I was doing Assassins in Milwaukee at the time. Uh, and I got a phone call from James Gray, a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, associate choreographer that works with Susan Stroman a lot. And we had done Me and My Girl together in London in 1984. Mm -hmm. And Mac and Mabel. Oh, no, maybe he didn't do Me and My Girl. Actually, I stand corrected. We did Mac and Mabel together. And I think we'd done another couple of shows in rep with Paul Kerrison. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But we had a relationship. And they were looking for somebody to play the school teacher, Miss Shield, because he was assistant choreographer to Warren, uh, War Warren Carlyle. Um, they were changing the story because originally it was going to, it was some sort of witchy character, I think, in the movie, a witchy kind of character. And this time they decided they'd change her into kind of gangster's mole. Mm. and that she would tap dance a number and they were looking for somebody somebody mature who was still tapping and I know that Warren knew me from London too he knew me of me because he was from London and we were doing shows probably around the same time so James rang me and said you know this has come up would you be interested in this and you know the uh, casting director is going to call you about it and I I was like of course you know yeah it sounds amazing it's a, an original musical of course um they rang and said it was soon because we were going to be out of town I think we were going to Hartford first soon the sooner than later that it would have to begin um and so when I got the call it was really more about just the negotiation than the, the actual it was basically offering me the job yes and do you want to do it? And I was like, yeah, of course I do. That's amazing. They said, but you will be tapping. So I went and got myself um, the props guys on Assassin, built me a round circular floor like a piece of wood. And I, I went and got some tap shoes and I started straight away because I hadn't tapped probably for about 20-something years. But I could still, it's like anything. It's like, you know, you could, like riding a horse. If you've been an Irish dancer, a tap dancer, it just comes back. But I wanted to practice. And then I got there and I couldn't, now look, in hindsight, can you imagine, like, Benj, um, you know, Pasek and Paul now have become, you know, Oscar-nominated writers and Broadway Tony Award winners. And, and they, you know, when I worked with them on Christmas Story, they were still really young, but you could tell that they were going to be superstars. And so that's thrilling to think I, I got to work with these amazing young men and they were so kind in rehearsals and so positive. And um, I loved John Rando as a director. I thought he was divine. Um, and Warren Carlyle, of course, it goes without saying, he's probably one of the greatest. So um, it was an incredible experience. So it, it was a bit like Sweeney Todd, 
bit like, you know, just out of the blue, you get this phone call and suddenly there you are. And then the next thing you know, you're on Broadway for the show. And then the next thing you know, you're at the Tony Awards doing the number. (laughs) It's just nuts. (laughs) So a lot of my work has happened in that way, I have to say. Anastasia's the same. I didn't audition in America. I I, I did a self-tape. They, they got in touch with me and said, do you want to audition? And I said, yeah. And they and I they said when the auditions would be. And I was in England working and I said, oh, I just don't know that I can get there right now. Um, do you think I could do a tape? And then if they're really interested in me, like really interested in me, I'll come over, you know. It's a bit cheeky, but I just thought, you know, it was not good timing. I did the tape, which was singing some of the Countess and the Common Man, some of uh, Land of Yesterday, a couple of scenes. I did it in my lounge room. I wasn't in bed. <laughs> I did it in my lounge room. <laughs> yeah. Um, sent the tape off. And then I said to my husband, oh, I'm so stupid. I said, I should have gone. I should have gone. This is just wrong. You know, they're not going to get to meet me. And, and I've really screwed it up now. And then um, they said that they'd let me know if they want me to come. I didn't hear anything for a little while. Then I get this email and it says, we've been watching all your stuff on YouTube. We've literally gone down a hole and we've watched all your clips and we want to offer you the job. Wow. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I've never noticed people complain about self-tapes all the time, don't they? you know, that they don't like doing them. Um, I don't know. Sometimes they can work, I suppose, and sometimes they don't. But um, from my experience, it, it was a good experience. And, uh, of course, working with Darko was um, amazing, amazing. Um, yeah. So there's been a lot of fate, I think, for me. I'm still waiting to see what the next exciting episode is going to happen, you know, because it's it always surprises me. Yes. Well, I look forward to seeing whatever it is. Meet. Honestly, let's hope that it will be something, you know. I mean, a couple of times I have screwed up, Charles. Like, I was supposed to do an audition for Follies when they did it the last time. You know, the big production of Follies. Yeah. And Warren asked me to send him a video, a tape. And I was doing my own one-woman show at the time in London, in the West End, with, a, with the dancers and a band. And I, I had so much on my plate. And I did a recording of I'm Still Here and I and I wasn't happy with it. And so I said that I'm not going to send it because I'm not focused enough. I'm too, I'm focused on, and I really was cross with myself afterwards because I should have sent it by the by. I should have done it anyway because um, I've actually, since then I've looked at the tape and it's not as bad as I thought <laughs> it was. <laughs> anyway, Elaine Page ended up doing it, so that's fine. But I was like, you should have, you know so sometimes when people say to me now you got any advice and I go go for everything everything even if you don't get it you must go you mustn't you know just because maybe they'll want you for something else you never know that is great advice and the final question I'd love to ask you is having tackled so many of the great roles is there one that you would want to do in the future Oh, you know, I've had people say to me a lot that I should do MAME. Yes. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't really sort of on my list of things because I've done Gypsy and I did Gypsy twice and I would do that again in a heartbeat because I absolutely love that show. Um, 
But MAME's one that people always talk to me about and say, you should do MAME. And I'm like, really, do you think? Because, I mean, it is a great score. It's a great, great story. So, you know, you never know. I don't think I'm too old for that yet. No. Um, I thought at one point I wanted to do Sunset Boulevard because I wanted the challenge, I think from an acting point of view particularly. And I did the workshop of that with Patti Lapone when we did it at Sydmonton Festival. Uh-huh. So I was lucky to be part of that experience of seeing her and Kevin Anderson create those roles. And, you know, we performed it at Lloyd Webber's house. He's got this beautiful cha- sort of chapel that's a sort of theatre. And, we, and Meryl Streep came and all these amazing people came to see the workshop. And and I thought to myself, you know, maybe at some point I'd like that challenge. But now I've seen that, the, you know, that, that it's taking a different sort of road. Uh, you know, I don't think that I would be appropriate probably for this particular production that's out now, the one with Nicole Scherzinger, which looks amazing. Um, but I'm, I would like to create a role from scratch. I think that... That's what always been the things that I've enjoyed. I love revivals with all my heart and soul. I mean, I, you can't beat a good music, you can't. But I would love to create a role that other people want to play in the future. You know, like I've been inspired by people who, the Ethel Merman doing Gypsy and Cheetah Rivera doing Chicago and West Side Story. And the fact that I've been inspired by those people, I would like to create a role that would inspire other people too. And I've been lucky so far. I've got to do Miss Shields. It's not the lead. It's a lovely role, and I got to do the Countess and sort of create that. Yes. So that's lovely, and I'm sure people are going to enjoy playing Countess uh, um, because it's so fun. But I would that would have that would be the dream for me is to create something from scratch and people to go, wow, I'd love to play that role because if you can make it a timeless piece, you know, it could go on forever. I don't suppose that will happen, but. Um, that would be the dream. Yes, that would be great. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. You've been so lovely. You're so charming. and, and Listeners, I- thank you for tuning in. Remember to leave a rating and review. And remember to come back next time when I will be joined by Tony-winning actress Marianne Plunkett, who is currently starring as Older Allie in Broadway's The Notebook, She also has starred on Broadway in Sunday in the Park with George, Agnes of God, Me and My Girl, A Man for All Seasons, and with Tony Randall's National Actors Theatre in St. Joan, The Seagull, The Master Builder, and A Little Hotel on the Side. Along with her husband, J.O. Sanders, she has also starred in Richard Nelson's theatrical cycles about the Apple family, the Michaels, and the Nelsons, most of which were produced at the Public Theatre. You won't want to miss that interview, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.